folks we're back uh, another podcast i'm here with a uh, former district attorney clint campion hey clint hey good afternoon do people ever call you champion people get my name wrong all the time all you have yes. to do is add the h that's right so you were you were like the guy you were the da for the for anchorage i was so you were the head dude i was for about uh two and a half years so if i got in trouble and i came to you and said can you guys not char- charge me you'd be the guy to talk to yeah, you wouldn't like that conversation, but that would, <laughs> I would how, be the guy to talk to. How many people ever legitimately who were in trouble came to you and said, hey, can you guys like just drop these charges? Or do people not really do that? They don't really do that. They're not directly. It's more indirect and more subtle where maybe the lawyer suggests something or you get family members that might call you up and say that someone's wrongfully charged. But rarely, if ever, does a defendant call you directly and say that they want the charges dropped. So, you're, so the, as DA, you were, uh, I guess, appointed, right, by the oh, attorney general? That's right. And then you oversaw all the, how many districts are in Alaska? For? So there's uh, 13 different offices and there's typically, I think it's 11 district attorneys that kind of break up the whole state. So the Anchorage district attorney's office is responsible for the municipality of Anchorage, as well as Bristol Bay, uh, the Aleutian Islands and the Pribilof Islands. Oh, really? So there's a huge geographic expanse. So, so other, other states and, and, you know, cities and counties, they... Sometimes they're elected, right? Most DAs? of the time they're elected. Uh, I think Alaska and Rhode Island are the only states that don't elect their uh, their prosecutors. So I think it's ultimately a good thing for for Alaska that we're not that prosecutors are not elected. Well, say so yeah, we don't elect judges either, and I, I actually like that because then you ends up being political. And there's all these stories about some judge got bribed or some some campaign. You know, he's taking care of some guy who gave him money, and it seems like it's better to have it the system we have. I like the judicial council. Yeah, I think so too. So you came to Alaska, you were a, a JAG, right? I was. I was an Army judge advocate, and I served at Fort Richardson for three years. That, that's what brought me to Alaska. And um, that must have been interesting, huh? Yeah, Alaska was interesting. Uh, my prior experiences were more interesting, frankly, because I had been overseas and had deployed, and that was really an interesting experience. Where were you stationed at? Uh, I was stationed at Fort Drum, New York, and I had deployed to Kosovo. The story that I would tell about that was... We were at Fort Polk getting ready to go to Kosovo on September 11, 2001, and there oh, were a lot wow. of us that thought we were just going to go right from Fort Polk to Afghanistan, but instead they sent the rest of the division from Fort Drum. You, you mentioned before we spoke you were in Germany? I went to Germany after I was in Kosovo, and then I deployed to Iraq, and uh, Kuwait, and then Iraq. Uh, we were supposed to go to Iraq through Turkey, but the Turkish government back in 2003 vetoed our offer. I think I think uh, President Bush offered something like $16 billion to allow us to go through Turkey to invade Iraq, and the, their parliament said no. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. So when you were in Germany, weren't you saying that sometimes some of the, if, if some of the soldiers got in trouble off the base, that they would still, the Germans would still kind of say, oh, you guys handle it, or like, would it kind of depend on the, the, the charge or the offense? It was almost unheard of, though it did happen, where the German authorities would prosecute American soldiers or American family members almost all the time. The German Polizei would just turn the case over to the military police. Clint, and we the, got another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the most typical one would be uh, either DUIs off base or, or kids that were traveling to Amsterdam, and they would pick up illegal drugs, and the Polizei would just be waiting on the train when oh, they came right. to Germany, and they would be busted right there. Well, they don't have, uh, do they check? They don't, they don't have, I mean, I've spent time in Europe. There's no borders anymore, basically. It's just... It's kind of open. Well, right. Maybe but, they inspect once in a while. Well, or? GIs are easy to pick out on a train. Oh, yeah. No, whenever so I'm in Europe, like... I can... I, so I spend time... My first trip... I mean, I, I've been there many times, but I went to... Um, in 2006, I spent three months in Europe, and I spent a month in Germany, and I was in... Um, 
uh, uh, what's the, I love saying, I forgot the, the name of the, it's where the big base, there's a big base there. Um, the big castle, you know, the, the old Heidelberg. Castle. Heidelberg. Yeah, I was in Heidelberg and, uh, I spent like uh, three or four days there and I mean, it's like, oh, hi Americans. Like you could, you didn't even need to talk to them. You could just see exactly they were younger, like GI guys yeah. and they were everywhere. I mean, right. it was like all over the place. I remember being in Heidelberg for an event and the TGI Fridays had a line around the block because people wanted to eat at Fridays and there were a thousand great German restaurants outside the base that were better. Oh yeah. Wow. <laughs> So you, so you were Europe, and then you uh, came to Alaska when? In 2005, I got stationed here. And you and you were, how long were you doing the JAG uh, before you got So out? I did three years in, in that role as a JAG here. I was the head prosecutor for uh, for the Army in Alaska, which included Fort Wainwright and Fort Greeley. So I had a chance to see a fair amount of the state and be involved in all kinds of military justice matters. And it was an interesting time because Fort Richardson was building up their, the 425 Airborne Brigade combat team was being established and they were getting ready to deploy. So there were a lot of interesting issues surrounding that formation and then their deployment. If I recall, they went to Iraq and then later went to Afghanistan. Yeah, the first time we met, I remember it uh, vividly. You came to our community council meeting because I was president of my community council for several years and we uh, we had never really heard from anybody on the uh, prosecutor's office. And, and I think you were doing some outreach, at, yeah, we, I recall, uh, and you were coming over and talking to everybody. I, I had a kind of a vision as a, as a DA to do more community outreach. And I thought an easy way to start with that was community councils. And so that first year I was DA, I think, I, I think there's 37 community councils, roughly that's, 38. Yeah. And I think we hit 36 of them. I did probably a third. And then the rest of the other prosecutors covered their neighborhood. You must have had councils. some real crazy interactions. I mean, you know, some, some of the people I, I wasn't involved in community council for a long time. And it attracts, I, I'd say three kinds of people, people who legitimately want to help out and care about the community. Um, people who are using it as a stepping stone to, to run for office and then the, probably the best is people who can't get elected to anything else, so they get, they get involved in the community council, and you get some you get some quite loose individuals at some of those meetings. Well, I I didn't have any real negative experiences. People were generally very receptive to us coming there. They had questions about the criminal justice system, questions about what we were doing, but it was generally a very positive reception. I remember when you left, somebody was like, "That DA is a good-looking man." Well. Some, <laughs> some woman said that. I was like, "I know." Um, so. So I saw you a few weeks ago. You were uh, doing like a debate uh, for ballot measure one, the stand for salmon, and you were with that older biologist guy, or Bob fish? Leffler. Yeah, that guy is a legend. I mean, yeah, he, he was. He's uh, he's really interesting, and it was interesting to work with him on that project and in, in this uh, whole debate. And there was the other side. It was that woman. Uh, uh, what's her name? Am- Emily Anderson. And then. Uh, the other guy, and Tim was, lawyer. I can't remember his last name, but he, he's a lawyer who was there on behalf he of his, a, He had a last name. I'm trying to think because it was, somebody kept asking if he was somebody's brother, some, some guy, some famous, I forget the name, but anyway, so I, I, you know, I was kind of, I went to go watch it. It was 49th state and it was, I mean, it was a packed, it was hundreds of people in the room. Um, but I don't know, the, the big takeaway for me was, uh, you guys were having the debate and the, and the, the woman made that comment to you. Well, I know you're, I know you're new to this, Clint. And it got kind of like, I was like, wow, that seems kind of, was that, have you guys been doing this on and off or is it the first event you did? Well, it was the second time I had debated her. I had debated her the day before and um, it was very cordial. We did it at uh, KSK or Alaska Public Media. It was a pretty friendly conversation, Um, but the stakes were higher because, you know, it was a live crowd. There were questions coming in. It was televised. And so... I, I I certainly was aware that I was a little bit more keyed up than I was the day before. I'd say it was probably a, a pretty pro yes crowd too. Yeah, I, I think, I think more more so than I mean there was a lot of resource folks there, but I think the the crowd itself was kind of um, more a yes type. Crowd. I, I think that's fair. Um, and you know I hadn't 
known Emily really before these debates, but she'd had the reputation as being someone who was very calm and collected. And so uh, people that were observing the debate were surprised that she had taken that shot at me, which was... Yeah, I was I was just like, I, I even said, I was like, wow, that think, seems unnecessary. I think I was clear throughout my comments that I wasn't a natural resource lawyer, that I was coming at, coming oh, yeah. at, the, I was yeah. coming at the issue as someone who's got an interest in the community and the state and who's got a background in public service. And I've been practicing law for almost 20 years, and I can't still make sense of the ballot measure. What was that? Was that, I think it was you or Bob, but somebody said when it's, I've heard this before, I have some friends who are lawyers, when it's... When it's something so complicated, you know, nobody understands. It's like the only people who benefit are the lawyers. Yeah, I think the, the line I use is it's a lawyer's paradise because in, all, in that uncertainty, the, the, the confusion needs to be clarified by judges. And, and that's really a concern I have. Our court system is, is unable to meet its responsibilities right now. It's you know, closed on Friday afternoons. Yeah, I went over there to go look at something. I forgot a few months ago or something. I forgot it was closed. I was there Friday at 2 o'clock to 3 and it was closed. And I, I, I remember they did that to, I guess, save. I wonder how much money that even saves. Well, they, they posted something in the in the courthouse that said it would save $2 million a year by closing Friday afternoons. Um, and I, I won't dispute that that's true, but the the needs are still there. And, and the other thing that they've done is they haven't filled a lot of the rural magistrate judge positions. And so some of our smaller communities don't have a judicial officer in the community to handle those initial hearings. And so that's a concern. It means other judicial officers have to cover for those small communities. So how'd you get involved in the um, ballot measure one stuff? You know, I, I, I know I'm familiar with people that are involved in the oil and gas industry and they kind of reached out to me and, um, and one of my law partners and asked us if we would, you know, consider volunteering in this process. And it's probably, Frank, probably, probably better if they get a non-oil uh, guy up there. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and you know, I think when they, when I started, I wasn't sure where my, you know, where I would come down in my analysis. But I, as I've spent more time reviewing it, talking to people, and learning about it, I'm very firmly in the stand for Alaska, vote no on one camp. I just hate any. I mean, whether it's this or anything, I just, you know, this this legislation by initiative. I mean, they, they should. I actually think they should raise the th- threshold to sixty percent on initiative stuff because you know, just because some of it's so complicated. I mean, if it's 60%, okay. I mean, you can pretty much say, okay, there's a neat, like clear consensus, but you know, I mean, I've read it and I mean, I'm not lawyer. I mean, I'm not a stupid person, but I mean, I don't understand. Like, I'm like, what am I reading? I don't understand this, you know? Right. If, if, and I'm, I'm imagine being in the voting booth and reading it for the first time. I saw that the, when people actually go in the voting booth, it's, they're not going to get a chance, as I understand it, to read the entire measure. They're no, they, it's, a, it's, a sum, it's a summary, but it's still, even that's pretty um, long It's and long, complicated. but even that concerns me that you're being asked to vote on something and that it's not immediately in front of you. And, you know, some of us do read a lot of this kind of thing because it's part of our profession or we're interested in it personally, but the vast majority of people don't have time to just read up on the measure and learn all that they need to learn. So they're making their decision based on the advertising they hear. And, and I think the advertising is, I, is a little misleading. I have a uh, good friend of mine who's a lawyer and he'll send me stuff sometimes like he'll say, Hey, oh, this happened, check this out. And, and, um, I, I just, I just don't know if you guys are all on a different level with language or if you're just really all very smart. I don't understand what he sends me. It's these like court, you know, these judge judge decisions and like, I'm trying to read it and there's words I don't know. And some of the, even the words I do know, I'm trying to like, I have to read it 10 times to understand it. Why, why do lawyers talk like that? Well, there's a process that you go through, usually in your first year of law school where you are, you're adjusting to reading that material, trying to understand it, digest it. And it's really, it's difficult for most people, especially, you know, like I, I didn't have a background in the law. I studied engineering as an undergraduate. So it was a real adjustment and it takes a while. And then just as time passes, you become more comfortable with the way legal writing is done and opinions and orders and so forth. Yeah. I think it's almost on purpose because it won't confuse the, 
the regular folks, you know, we, we, we don't want them to understand. <laughs> well, you, you know, precision is really important and words matter. And again, that the concern I have with ballot measure one is that we're asking Alaskans to make a decision on you know, an eight page document that's got a lot of legal terms. in it. Well, there, there was I think one of the, the main takeaways from that thing for me was um, what's that word about water or anadromous. Yeah, an anadromous. I kept saying that word. I mean, what's that mean? It means so not it, flowing it, into a... Well, it means anadromous uh, waters are those waters that support uh, fish oh, that, right, right. that so, have to migrate from the ocean to natural ha so, habitat. So they were talking about, he, he mentioned if, if a, I think the guy, Bob, right? He meant, or they mentioned if a, if a lake or something was created from a storm, temporary, then it would, you know, and then she was like, she was saying that's not true, and then he was like, "Read it. It's like, can you like, it's true, you know, about how it would affect, you know, maybe a, a resource project or a road or something." And there was all this kind of like, remember that this oh, confusion yeah. about is, yeah. is this big temporary kind of water area? Um, What's clear from the ballot measure is it creates a presumption that all waters in Alaska are anadromous fish habitat, which means that they would bear salmon or other anadromous fish. That's a sea change from where we are now. And so, so like a you, lake isn't that, is it? I mean. It, well, under the current law, uh, the, the Department of Fish and Game has to certify that a lake, a river, or a stream is is a salmon habitat. But what would change under ballot measure number one is that all waterways become presumed to be salmon habitat. And then if you want to do anything, you want to develop anything, you've got to prove to the Department of Fish and Game that it's not an anadromous fish habitat. It can be... It's like very, proving a negative. It's proving it? a negative. Oh. And, and so that's going to cost you know developers, it's going to cost regular people money if they want to build even small projects. Well, don't they have now the, the, the fishing game? They put out the, um, not index, what's it called? There's a book it's a, that... It's called the Anadromous Waters Catalog. Catalog, yeah, there's a catalog. Yeah. yeah, and you can go through the catalog and you can... I mean, it shows lakes and rivers. Yep. I mean, it kind of sh it's already there. That exists, doesn't and, it? And there's 20,000 or more waterways that are there. So you you know, you know, have an easy way to go to the website or talk to Fish and Game to see if your waterway is covered. And if you think that a waterway that you've encountered is an anadromous fish habitat, you just tell Fish and Game, and then they'll send somebody out. Well, another thing, it's like at one point she, she made the comment, you know, about she said something, you know, the fish, sustainable fish for Alaska's growing population. And I wanted to say, um, are we losing people? Didn't we lose 10,000? You know, right? But we have, I mean, our salmon run um, compared to 50 years, I mean, we're, we're, we're doing, it's not like the salmon, it's not like we're, where's the salmon? You know, I mean, we've had some in the past some years where there's been some low runs, but I mean, I think the, to me, the resource is being managed pretty 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 well i think so and in just last month the alaska journal of commerce reported record run runs of salmon mm -hmm. in bristol bay and in norton sound so much so that they can't even process all the fish in those areas and that doesn't mean there aren't some runs that are that have been down you know the cook inlet and kodiak and southeast have had some concerns but the concerns are not based on the habitat or, or the protection of the habitat it's based on factors outside of alaska um, but I think Fishing Game's doing a very good job of protecting the habitat. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be more debate and awareness about what we're doing to protect habitat. But this measure goes too well, far. I, I asked a question. They didn't. They didn't ask it. I wrote a question. I said, I said, who, who kills more fish, uh, uh, fishermen or, or resource industry? They, 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 <laughs> they didn't ask my question. Um, so yeah, I mean that's coming. That's coming up here about what ten days away. We're going to have the vote, and um, I, I, I don't, and I don't see it passing. I, th I think that. The, the Stanford Alaska has done a pretty good job of saying, hey, you know, this is not this is not, not something we need. It's going to I mean, they said under that it would we wouldn't even get we wouldn't get the pipeline built. 
Well, and or, as as it is today, you know? and you and there are concerns about getting additional permits to keep taps running to mm-hmm. do other projects that are vital to not just to our economy but to our infrastructure. I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think it's no secret to me the whole thing really it's about Pebble, but you can't you can't target a project, right? So you have to you have to you have to do the whole the blanket kind of I, policy. You know, I think the ballot measure advocates have taken their best shot. They've you know they they wanted the most comprehensive, thorough protection for salmon hat that, that they could dream up and it goes way too far and i think they overplayed their hand well i mean to me the 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 big um flag was was byron Malott when he was lieutenant governor. He, he he rejected it initially and they had to sue and go to the court and then the court approved it but then the court they later changed part of it so i mean it's just to, to me i think these things are best decided i guess their argument is well the legislature hasn't dealt with it but you know i mean it's like we elect people to make laws and, you know, I, I just, I've always, whatever it might be, even the marijuana deal, you know, that was one that, look at how complicated that is now. It's a real mess in a lot of ways. Right. Um, well, I want to talk a little bit about SB 91, because, I mean, this is something that everybody knows about. And they, it's almost like, uh, you know, that a lot of hotels don't have the 13th floor. I think going in the future, they're going to like strike nine, SB 90, when, when they get to the numerical, you know, they introduce bills and then it's whatever's, whenever it comes to 90, it's going to go from 91 to 93. Right. Um, so you were there when this passed, right? Well, yeah, but even before that, in 2014, the legislature established a criminal justice commission. And that's an important part of this, that the legislature basically gave, uh, created this commission and said, figure out ways to make our criminal justice system smarter and more efficient. And this isn't unique. I mean, Kentucky and other states have dealt with huge skyrocketing costs on, on prisons. And they've, there's been a lot of reforms that have, for the last several years that have been happening around which i think is a, a good thing absolutely but the i mean tell me about the this commission and then how sb91 i mean i think john coghill was the guy that he was kind of the big proponent of it wasn't he in the yeah in i mean the senate I, side? so in my role as a prosecutor in anchorage you know i have some but limited involvement in a lot of the legislation the way the department of law is set up they focus the district attorney's attention and time on prosecuting bad guys and largely keep the district attorneys out of the legislative debates and the policy debates that's not entirely true um, but we were certainly aware of what was coming down the pike, I, and we all understood as prosecutors that we our job is to enforce the law, not to make the law, and uh, and so we knew that there were going to be changes, and then we had to deal with them. And the, the one of the frustrations that we had was that the messaging related to Senate Bill ninety one was that um, it was going to be that the penalties were going to go down, and and people that commit crimes knew about it even before Senate Bill ninety one was in its final version. We had defendants coming to court on a daily basis saying, I know about Senate Bill 91 and you can't hold me in jail or you're not going to punish me. They had a misunderstanding about the details, but they had an understanding that the price of crime had gone down for them. So on certain crime, I mean, on, 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 like, there's like the call they uh, people say catch and release or whatever. And somebody does something and they get like steal a car or something. They're out the next day. Um, but on other crime, like on violent crime, didn't some of the penalties go up on, on like murder? and? Yeah, certainly the, the Senate Bill 91 increased the minimum sentences for murder. But in my experience, I prosecute a lot of homicide cases. The minimums are never a factor. It's the maximums that are mm-hmm. typically a factor. And so, well, that's a nice that that's important messaging from the legislature that, you know, homicides are going to be dealt with more severely. It didn't practically make a lot of difference. So, so how much do you attribute? I mean, there's this crime problem. We all know about it. Uh, let's say if, if Senate Bill 91 never passed, if, if everything today was same as it was before Senate Bill 91. I mean, would there's, I think there'd still be a, I mean, the crime rise started before that was passed, but how much do you attribute what's going on now to SB 91 and how much do you say, well, it's people just kind of, that's the 
that's the easy one to point to. I think it's too easy to say that it's all attributable to Senate Bill 91. There were parts of Senate Bill 91 that are that make sense and that would continue to make sense. Some of the reforms in probation, they do make some sense to make the uh, probation supervision smarter. There's some a- aspects of Senate Bill 91 that really do make well, sense. Well, and they fixed, I mean, the, with that SB 54, they the, the big problem was the out-of-state uh, criminal history. They couldn't, initially wouldn't take that into account. Remember the, the thing over there, the fucking Northway Mall, the, they were like in a gunfight. And then uh, they they had all this criminal stuff in California, but they couldn't factor it, so they got like released. Yeah, that was a, that was a concern. It was like a legit like an OK Corral gunfight during the day. Senate Bill Fifty Four did fix some important parts of it. I actually testified on behalf of Senate Bill Fifty Four down in Juneau. But one thing that has not changed, and I think it's worth considering, is Senate Bill Ninety One um, changed the way we deal with drug offenders. It used to be if you were possessing heroin in the community. Uh, and you were stopped by the police, and it was a good stop by the police, that's felony conduct. That's what it was. And so people were facing the potential of a felony. And the way we dealt with that is um, the police would first say to these people, I can arrest you for a felony, or you can work with me, and you can help identify your dealer. And that, you know, Mm -hmm. faced with the choice of a felony prosecution and possibly going to jail versus working against a drug dealer, that was a good tool for law enforcement to use. That tool largely went away when when that conduct was made a misdemeanor. Really made it difficult for for law enforcement officers to develop informants about drug dealing, and it made it really difficult for prosecutors to take people that were charged with possessing heroin or methamphetamine or opioids and forcing them into a treatment program into some community supervision. So really, that 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 has not been dealt with by Senate Bill Fifty Four, and I have reason to believe that there'll be a push in the legislature to change that part of Senate Bill Ninety One. So, so what do you think about this whole new part of SB Ninety One? Is this pre pre trial enforcement or pre trial division? I mean, this is a whole new department right it for, is for the i mean the state essentially is before it didn't they outsource that stuff the monitoring and so the tracking the, of, of basically parole, um, or, uh, parole, what the, is it, bail? the court system would you know had the authority to set the bail and still does um prior to the pre, pre-trial enforcement division there were private businesses that would come in and say that they could monitor an offender and they would make a proposal to the judge. And there were some that were some that were and are good businesses and they were doing a really good job monitoring offenders in the community. And uh, some that weren't, we forced them out. We would, you know, make, we would make the position, take the position with the judge that they weren't doing a good job. And essentially those people were out of business. So it was kind of a, it was a market. It was a market. It was a capitalistic thing. And I'm concerned that the creation of the pretrial enforcement division basically forced those people out of business. And, you know, I guess time will tell how well the pretrial enforcement division is doing. But the idea that uh, when we would go to court before the PED existed, uh, we, we had lawyers on both sides that were looking at the information that we had, making arguments, and a judge would make a decision. That's the the core you know, of how it's supposed to work. And if the pretrial enforcement division can provide more information to the court, then that's useful. But it can't replace the role of those attorneys. So, so you know, SP 91 was passed. There's a pretrial division. There's a bunch of other things that have you know, happened since what it passed in 2016. So we're summers. So the people like Laura Reinbold and the people that are saying, repeal it, repeal it, repeal it. I mean, could you realistically, realistically, if you repealed it next in Juneau this session and went, you know, reverted back to the old um, law before it was it was in place? I mean, could you actually even do that? I mean, there's so much that's happened since it's been passed. Well, there was so much that happened as part of Senate Bill 91. I mean, the the legal system adjusts to changes in the law, and if it if it repealed, it would probably create some confusion in the short term, but it certainly could be something that the court system deals with and law enforcement deals with. So, do you feel like the the lawmakers could have uh, engaged the prosecutors more or the Department of Law more or the public defender? I mean, the, I think the public defenders probably, I'm guessing they probably, they're on board with it. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, do I think that there should have been more 
you know, there was a, there were a lot of public hearings. There were a lot of public meetings. There were plenty of opportunities for people to weigh in. Uh, I don't think anyone anticipated all the problems that it was going to necessarily cause. Uh, and there were other factors that led to our increase in crime. What people don't talk about is how many prosecutors' positions were lost in the same time period that all of Senate Bill 91 was being debated. Uh, while I was, well, that's a big thing I've mentioned. I said, why, why some of the f- same folks who want to repeal, you know, they're tough on crime. They want to cut the budget, you know, but they don't, they don't want to, f- I mean, they want to pr- prosecute all this crime, but then they, they don't want to fund prosecutors or police or, well, and when you hear people talk about funding prosecutors and police because they want to make the community safer, if you're going to do that, you're going to see more cases in court, which is going to mean we need more public defenders available to mm-hmm. de- represent those defendants. Cause we all care as Alaskans that people have you know, fair, fair hearings and fair trials, it also means that more of regular Alaskans are going to be called into jury duty. So there's an increase in costs across the board. You By the way, I've never be- been called. I'm 30, 34 in a few months. I don't know, like, my roommate just got a letter. He, he got called. Uh, I've gotten letters. I've never got, I don't know, understand. I want to go. Uh, well, I'm the guy who wants to go to jury duty. Well, I hope all people feel that They're way. They're probably going to knock me right away. They're going to, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'll say something. In jury selection, you'd be someone who would stand out and. and oh, yeah. And, like, that guy, bye. <laughs> he's <laughs> got of. strong opinions, and is he going to follow my argument? Probably not. So, so how's the work? So, for a jury, they have so many people, and then each side can knock off people, right? Or Yeah, it depends on the type of case, but on some of the more serious cases, uh, the court, the judge might bring in 80 to 100 people. And, you know, typically what happens is they fill out questionnaires and we get a chance to review things about the jurors before they even come to court. So we can, there are some people that are just not suitable. If for you saw me, would you, what would you do if you saw my name? I'd bring you in just so I could talk to you on the record. <laughs> I know the defense would get rid of you, but I know you well enough that I think that you'd probably oh, I'd, be I'd a good to, juror. I'd love to be on there. That, yeah. my, my friend, um, my friend Bryce years ago was uh, on a jury. It was a civil matter and um, it was just a fascinating, he, he actually, um, somebody was suing, I forget what it was, but the, the jury wanted to most people on the jury wanted to award this huge settlement. And he, he remembers, you know, saying, following the instructions for the judge. And I mean, he basically talked everybody through it and he, and he eventually they kind of came to a consensus, but he said it was the most fascinating kind of, you know, 12 people in a room deciding this important stuff. And there's a judge that served in, in, in Anchorage for a long time. And, and I've done a number of trials with him and he would always tell jurors at the end that the vote that they render as a juror is the most direct form of, democracy that exists you know you can vote on november 6th on a variety of issues and you know your vote may have some make some small difference but in a especially in a criminal jury trial your vote makes all the difference in the world so so what if what if you're in a trial criminal trial and it's 11 to 1 and i'm let's say i'm the holdout okay no matter what i'm not going to go and eventually it's it's a hung it's called a hung jury it would be so you just basically the guy's not guilty, but he's not not guilty. I mean, they start over for the so, jury. Well, or? first, the judge has got some responsibility to make sure that there are no legal questions that the jurors have. If there's a dispute about what legal terms mean, the judge can resolve that. The judge can't send any more evidence back there, but the judge can force jurors to deliberate longer. But I've been involved in many <laughs> hung juries, and uh, eventually, once the judge says there's nothing more we can do to get these folks to come to a decision, then they'll declare a mistrial, and then it'll be scheduled for trial again. What what if um have you ever had a situation where somebody slipped through and then later you f- figure out they have a stake in they have you know they they something in their past or they have a connection to somebody I mean does that ever happen it or happens is that- a lot people you know part of it is when you're inexperienced as a juror you, or as a as a trial attorney you don't know the right things to ask the right things to look for but sometimes people have just have an interest in the outcome of a case and they'll they'll hold that from you and you won't get that until later and typically the way you find out is jurors are free to talk about their experience. And they'll sometimes let you know about what the factors were in the deliberations. 
So that's after the verdict, though. After the verdict. Can you can can will that can that affect the outcome of verdict? If they it, later find out that uh, somebody has a, it would have to be some sort of juror misconduct. But typically, as a prosecutor, you're not going to get another bite at the apple. What if you find out during the could they have alternates or something? They can, they can yeah, they remove jury members or typically there are alternates. But once they begin deliberating, it's only those jurors mm-hmm. that are there, and so you're in a bad spot. Now I've had I've been involved in uh, at least one case where there was a juror that w- couldn't continue to deliberate for one reason or another. And uh, both sides liked the jury and said, we'll agree to go with 11 instead of 12, which is kind of interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah. What, um, have you ever had like loose people just like start talking when they shouldn't be talking or go, media or Facebook? Because uh, you're, you're not supposed to talk about anything, right? When you're, you're not dur- supposed during to talk the trial about or deliberation? No, what I, we, we've been aware of jurors that were putting things on social media during a trial. Oh, God. And there's another <laughs> one I remember. He, uh, he had a little, uh, like a, not a smartphone, but a device that was a, a digital dictionary and he got in trouble for that because he was looking up words and coming up with different you know kind of under the table and then <laughs> telling the other jurors well this word means that and people finally figured out that he was using some sort of what device so he got in trouble for that um last thing i want to ask you about i don't know if you want to discuss it i'm curious your take on this judge Corey situation sure um you know i i think that's the one where the the guy got the, the plea deal for he kidnapped or took the, took the woman and and you know horrible thing um from my view, I mean, I, he's, he was, maybe you can expand on this, but from my view, he was doing what the law, I mean, the law allowed the prosecution to do what they did. And I think we can argue that the law was probably needed to be stronger. Um, but what's your take on the whole thing with, I mean, they're coming after him now. You know, there's d- a campaign against him. You know, it, it's, I guess it's on one hand, it's good. It's uh, this debate has heightened awareness about things that happen in the criminal justice system. I'm concerned that we don't really have reporters that are down there on a daily basis or regular basis covering what happens in our courts. No, actually, I was just talking to my, my lawyer friend. I, I want him, um, I'm, I'm really pushing him to start doing a legal, on my blog, a legal column, because there's no courthouse reporters, really. Right. And he's telling me all the time about stuff going on. He'll afford me a decision. Like the uh, ACLU, the courts ruled against uh, the Dunleavy for Alaska and the ACLU about the signs. And I, I report, nobody reported that. Right. Anyways, a, judges make hard decisions every day. The decisions that Judge Corey made was within the law, the boundaries of the law. Um, you know, I don't think that a judge should lose his, his job because of one decision that people disagree with. That's a legal decision. Um, if he would have, re- he, he could have, I guess, rejected the plea, right? He could have rejected the plea and had them come back and come up with a new plea agreement. But the, basically, based on what I understand, the prosecutor could have proven or believed that he could prove there wasn't a lot of range for moving that the target and um you know there's negotiation and give and take and ultimately the prosecutor thought he came up with a resolution that he thought was as fair as it could be under the circumstances doesn't mean it makes everybody happy but prosecutors judges and defense attorneys make decisions every day in those courthouses and nobody knows about them and they would make people unhappy if they understood well what, what, what i said and when I've, I've talked to some lawyers and former prosecutors and the, the in- interesting thing about this one is if if um he would have gone to trial and been found not guilty, probably nobody would have even heard about it or talked about it. But the fact that they made the deal and the deal was to a lot of people um, unacceptable. Now it's now. I mean, I I talked to a, a a former prosecutor that said years ago there was a situation where a woman a guy was driving downtown in the alley saw saw a guy basically trying to rape a woman um, saw it you know witnessed it went intervened called the police guy was arrested. Uh, there was a trial, and I mean, there was like eyewitness testimony of a guy who came and saw it and broke it up, and um, you know he was found not guilty. Well, and, and they I, said it's very, very, very hard to get convictions, and 
prove you know beyond a reasonable uh, doubt. Yeah, it's tough. I my last the last trial I did as district attorney in September of 2017 was a second retrial for a case that was a, a sexual assault case. It was an old a cold case, um, and you know you go you go through that twice and you put a victim through that that experience yeah, twice. That's, worst, that's really part tough. The worst part yeah, that. and the jury you know and so. That's tough, and you make those decisions all the time as a prosecutor about, you know, can we prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt or not? And, you know, it's important to remember there are 3,000 felonies roughly a year that get referred to the Anchorage District Attorney's Office. And if people are so upset about handling the one case, that's going to send a message that prosecutors should try more cases. That means more time for jurors, more time for the court, and the court just doesn't have that kind of resources to handle all that. So you got to make hard decisions all the time. I don't know in Alaska, but I've heard that statistic that something like 90-some percent of, of cases don't go to trial. Right? That's true. And, and it's higher than ninety percent here and in most places. But but if if, if somebody's uh, convinced they want to go to, I mean, they, there's you can go, if, if nobody wants to make the plea or whatever, they they go to the trial. Absolutely, defendants have the right to not to plead not guilty all the way through. They absolutely do. I got I got to ask you this hypothetical. I've always I've always wondered this. I've asked my lawyer friends. Let's say um, I do something that I like. I don't know. I, I I kill a guy because I'm justified in whatever he did, right? So I and I'm convinced in my mind that I did the right thing. Um, and I want to go to trial, and I want to say, you guys should nullify it. You guys can, because the juries can let people go, right? Not under Alaska law. Oh, they can't. Okay, because I've always wondered if you just if you just say, you know, uh, I, you know, kind of taking law into your law into your own hand situation for whatever reason. Um, you can, can you? How does that work with so jury nullification? The jury nullification is not allowed in Alaska. And so, if you were in that situation, and, and I was defending you, and and you believe that you're. Def- that you were justified in what you did, we would focus on the law, not on nullification. We wouldn't say you should let him off because it's the right thing to do. I would say you should find him not guilty because the law doesn't support a conviction. And we've got robust self-defense laws and defensive third-party laws in Alaska. I'm talking about like like a guy kills a family member and you just you know he does it and you just go hunt him down and, and then he just... That's per- you're per- per- probably not going to get off. You're probably not, uh, but there are a lot of things for the prosecutor to consider, the facts and circumstances. So jury null, I mean, I, so that's not a, a thing here? Or it's that's, not a thing here. I thought juries could ignore the law. Or uh, They can't. And so your, oh, job, no is, I thought, okay. your job as a prosecutor is to find people that are going to follow the law. There are jurors that may be inclined not to follow the law. And as I got more experience doing trials, one of the things I want to figure out is, is this person actually going to follow the law or are they going to take the law into their own hands? Mm-hmm. Have you ever gotten not guilty verdicts where you're just oh. like, wow, I can't believe it. Like, this is a slam dunk. It should be a slam dunk. No, I don't think I ever had a case where I thought I should have gotten a guilty verdict and I didn't. And particularly with the benefit of hindsight, as I've had more experience, more time to reflect. Um, either the evidence wasn't there or there's something that was, may have been lacking in my performance, uh, something I overlooked. Um, but as I got more and more experienced, I knew there were cases that would be hard, but you don't know exactly how it's going to go until you get into the courtroom. So people that, you know, Monday morning quarterback a decision, mm-hmm. they've not sat through trial where a witness who's got to testify may not say exactly what they said before. That raises questions for a jury. So how does that work? If somebody gives you a sworn statement, affidavit, whatever, and you put them on the stand, you ask them a question where you know what they're supposed to you're supposed to know the answer, and they change, they change it. It happens a lot. So you, the way you mitigate that is you prepare their testimony. Typically, they've given a recorded statement to the police. They've probably testified before the grand jury. You let them listen to those recorded statements, and then you ask questions at the trial. Despite Why would all, they change? Maybe, maybe somebody's pressuring them, or maybe they feel bad. Maybe they who knows? There's a variety of reasons, and it's it's surprising when it happens. You you know in your in your stomach that Uh-oh. all that you've set up to be successful is not going to happen. All right. So last question. Uh, you're in private practice now. Yeah. 
What's the? I mean, you've been military jag. You were district attorney. Now you're in private pra- practice. What? What? I mean, what's the b- benefits and the? Well, I'd say the, you know the. I've always good parts a, and bad parts. I've had a desire to be in the private sector and to build a business for myself, and I'm in that role now, and I find it very rewarding. It's nice to be in the capitalist society and to be responsible for you know earning your own revenue. You know, providing for your family directly without the assistance of you know a big government, mm-hmm. and so that's Val- the point value. That, yeah, well, yeah, you feel valued because your people are paying you for your time. Do you ever tell people? Do you ever have clients? I don't. Do you do criminal or civil or both or what do you? Mostly civil. Yeah. So do you ever drop the? Uh, yeah, I used to be the DA. No, I don't no think big, so. No big deal. I think you know people now would probably Google you and figure out what your background is. Our firm has a website, so people have some idea about your background or they've been you know. There's not a lot of advertising that goes on. Most of the time, people come to you because of a referral or word of mouth. That's kind of how it comes. And so they have some idea what they're getting when they when they hire you. Well, Clint, this has been great. I appreciate you doing this. I mean, I, I met uh, you, I guess I met you, what, three or four years ago at the community council. And then I saw you at the ballot measure one deal. And I, I said, let's do the podcast. And I, uh, I had a great time. This is uh, this is uh, my first podcast with a DA. Well, so. it's been fun. And I look forward to reading yeah, the landmine. We should, we, should, we should do another one. Thanks for reading the landmine. And, Appreciate the, uh, the, the, uh, the support. I think the landmine is really valuable for our community. Well, I, I appreciate that. All right, folks. Well, this is uh, Jeff Landfield, uh, Landmine Radio with Clint Campion. If you're listening and you have any ideas for a podcast or want to do a podcast, uh, go ahead and get a hold of me. Um, we're doing these all the time. Thanks again, Clint. Thanks. Landmine.